Appreciate that. Amen. Well, happy Sabbath, church. I hope it's a happy Sabbath. If it isn't yet, don't worry, the day's not done. We've still got several hours where we can really experience the joy of God's rest. And uh, maybe you're experiencing the joy of close fellowship. Amen. Yeah? So, um, you know, today is a, is, a, is a beautiful day. It's a beautiful Sabbath. Uh, you may not have known, but here at, Prof, uh, at Parkwood, we've been doing a Discover Prophecy seminar. It started about two weeks ago, and tonight is actually the concluding meeting, so everyone, you are welcome to come. In fact, we want to welcome you right now to the Discover Prophecy seminar. You may not have known it, but you're here, so praise the Lord. Um, tonight, we are going to be going over some really significant things that build off of what we're studying here today. Today, our presentation is entitled, Movement of Destiny. Movement of Destiny. So if you got a bulletin, you probably found one of, your, one of the inserts. It's a presentation outline that looks like this. We'll actually just kind of follow that through. But we have here at Discover Prophecy, we've just kind of been going through prophecies, hope and truth and life. And so to, to this morning, we're talking about the movement of destiny. Uh, this evening, we'll look at the three angels' messages Uh, God's message, our mission. It's been exciting. People are recognizing that God is calling them out of darkness into his marvelous light, and I think we can all attest to that. Amen? God has called us. He's called us out of our own error. He's called us out of salvation by ourselves, for ourselves. He's called us out of that darkness into his marvelous light. And I realize today that we have kind of a, a mixed group Uh, There are some who are new to this light, okay, new to this faith. They're realizing, hey, there's there's something here and God is calling me into it. There are some who are established in this faith, okay? Some of you maybe are lifers, yeah? Some some lifers in the faith of what we know today is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And some, I realize today, are maybe even wondering, what's the big deal? Is there really all that much to this this idea of being called out and called in. And maybe today these are questions in your own heart and mind. Maybe you are a lifer and you're still wondering why. You know, is it just out of habit? Is it just out of default? Is it just out of routine or expectation? And today I I really just uh, want to encourage you because I believe God wants to add to this family. And and he's going to do it in a way that uh, maybe you didn't know he would do it before. Um, speaking of growing family, I really want to encourage you to come tonight, if you haven't been to the seminar, that you would be the kind of family that embraces those who are stepping into this journey. Can we agree to that? Yeah? I mean, seriously, when, when a baby is born, a baby isn't born into, into a, a vacuum. No, a baby is born into a family that nurtures that newborn, that nurtures that, that, that rebirthed life, okay? And that's what we're talking about. Please, come and be that family Speaking of growing family, I promised last night that I would share today something that no one has ever heard before. And I want to share with you just that family grows in a lot of different ways, especially when you're talking about biological family. Um, I want to let you know that uh, the Miranda family um, is growing. (laughs) So praise the Lord. (laughs) Yeah. Debbie wants to give kudos to those close friends of ours who, who maybe had a hunch but uh, didn't, didn't you know, want to kind of ask the embarrassing question or whatever. Anyway, so thank you for your kindness and, and gentleness there. Um, but yeah, we are, I think we're about 12 weeks along. Yeah? 
And so we're looking forward to baby Miranda uh, sometime in September 2015. Um, I know right now probably tweets are going out, Facebook posts, etc. No, no. <laughs> Anyways, you heard it here. You heard it here. It's true. Uh, so prayers appreciated, okay? Prayers appreciated. One, for our health, and uh, two, for our sanity. <laughs> but um, God is good. He knows how to grow us in more ways than one. But today, what we're talking about is the movement of destiny. And I want to encourage you that as we seek to, to understand why it is we're here, you know, is it just because we're expected to be here, or because our parents or our grandparents thought we would be here? Why, why are we here? Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the fact that you are the God who loves to give good gifts. Lord, even even when it seems you're silent, Lord, we know that you still love us. God, even when the sun isn't shining, we know it still does. Even when we feel far distant and far gone, where we feel like this is all a mistake, Lord, you are somehow causing all things to work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so today I recognize that maybe there are some of us who are going through some severe situations in which we feel like that very personally on a lot of different levels. And so today, would you please minister to each heart and where there are clouds, give them the assurance to penetrate with the eyes of faith to see you beyond those clouds. Thank you, God, for this opportunity to study. And as we open up these words, as we open up these pages, please open up our hearts in Jesus' name, let the family say, amen. amen. All right. Grab a Bible if you have one near to you. Grab your presentation outline or share it with your brother or sister next to you. We're going to study. All right, you ready? We're going to take a look at this movement of destiny, who we are or who we are considering to be from the perspective of three prophetic passages. How many? Three prophetic passages, all right? So first one up, we're going to Daniel. Daniel chapter 8. To go ahead and find the book of Daniel. If you've got an instrument in your hand, uh, maybe put it on your lap or whatever, <laughs> and find a Bible, go with me to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel is in the Old Testament. It's a little bit after the Psalms. Then you go Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, then Daniel. When you're in Daniel chapter 8, go ahead and say amen. amen. Okay, just a little bit of background. A little bit of background. If you've been coming to the Prophecy Seminar, you know some of these things, or maybe you've heard them before and you just need a little refresher. Here in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel sees this vision. He sees a vision of a ram and a goat, and they really don't like each other. Really, it's a picture of two kingdoms. It's Medo-Persia being taken over by Greece, and then as Daniel watches, he sees that there is a development on this goat. This goat has a horn, and that big horn actually breaks off, it becomes four, and then there's another horn that comes, and it does things to conquer. This horn, this little horn, does not only pursue earthly conquests, but this little horn is actually trying to cast down truth, cast down the very sanctuary of God. This little horn power, as you've maybe studied before, if you've been coming to the seminar, you know this little horn power is actually the Antichrist power in picture form. And as Daniel is watching this vision, he is heartbroken. How can this little horn actually be successful 
in taking out God and his truth. Actually, it says in Daniel chapter 8 that he, he sought to, to cast down the very sacrifices of God, the sanctuary of God, the very way that God demonstrates how he saves people. The little horn would try to eclipse the ministry of what Christ is doing in the sanctuary. And if what Christ is doing in the sanctuary means life and death to you and I, you can imagine why Daniel would be so distraught over this vision, right? And so in Daniel chapter 8, if you have it open, verse 13, he asks, or he's listening, and there's a question that resounds through the air that he himself is asking. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 13, Daniel chapter 8, verse 13, the Bible says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who is speaking, How long, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? The very question that, that kind of shakes Daniel's faith at this time. He's not sure where the sun is shining. He's wondering what's going on. How long is this going to last? And in verse 14, the answer is given. He said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Maybe your Bible says it a little bit differently. Then the sanctuary shall be restored. Uh, if you're reading from a different translation, I'm reading from the New King James today. And here, this vision of Daniel 8, verse 14, an answer is given. How long will this all last? It'll be 2,300 prophetic days, which means literal what? Does anybody know? Literal years. 2,300 years until things are set right. Until the heavenly ministry of Christ in the sanctuary is set right. Daniel hears this vision. And do you think this is positive news or, or, or negative news in the ears of this prophet? This is negative. He's, he's, he's like, what? What are you talking about? How could it be 2,300 years until things are set right? Because what, what Daniel recognizes is that he remembers times where he has studied the prophecies of Jeremiah and he learned that the temple in Jerusalem, while they were taken captive in Babylon, it would only be 70 years later till they would go back to restore that temple. So Daniel's kind of confused. Why is it now 70 years now to 2,300? <laughs> He's kind of confused. He's thinking only, only along the lines of an earthly temple, an earthly, an earthly sanctuary. So Daniel is trying to figure things out. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and notice how at the very end of chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 27, how Daniel feels about all of this. It says, And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but how many people understood it? No one. No one understood it, not even Daniel. I mean, he understood about Medo-Persia. He understood about Greece. He understood about the little horn and all these things, but he did not understand why it would take so long. In the previous verse, he, it's really specific, actually, in verse 26. In verse 26, it says, And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, do what? Seal up the vision... For it refers to many days in the future. So here Daniel is given some very specific instruction about that part of the vision that he doesn't quite understand. If you're following in your handout, go ahead and get your pen moving or your pencil moving, whatever it is. And just fill this in. It says apparently Daniel is sickened. Apparently Daniel is sickened by the fact that he did not understand the vision of the 
2,300 days. Go ahead and write that in. The 2,300 days. And in Daniel 8, verse 26, God's angel instructs Daniel to seal up. Go ahead and write that one in. To seal up that vision. Though it is true, it is not for his day, but for the time of the what? The end, okay? Are we following so far, yes or no? Yeah? Just kind of uh, picturing what's going on here. Daniel receives this vision about this 2,300-year period. He's not quite sure. It sickens him to death. He doesn't understand it. And so the angel in chapter 8, verse 26, tells him to do what with the vision? To seal it up. To seal it up. Daniel, he's trying to understand why, why, why. What happened to that 70-year anticipation? How is it 2,300? And so in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, what happens is Daniel prays his heart out. (laughs) He says, God, I know you're a God of great mercy. I know you're a God of your promises. Even when the sun doesn't shine, I know you're still there. He's praying his heart. Please, God, just fulfill your promise. If not for our sake, then for your name's sake. And in Daniel chapter 9, an angel comes to him. You read about it in verses 22 through 27. An angel comes to him and says, Daniel, let me help you understand this vision. There's a first part of it that does deal with the earthly temple. There's a first part of it that does deal, it's a 70 weeks of prophecy. The 70 weeks deals with what what would happen in the, the earthly phase, but the 2300 has to do with what will happen in the heavenly phase of the ministry. Okay? And so Daniel begins to understand. And before we go on to our next prophetic passage, I want you just to kind of catch a glimpse of some repeated themes. All right, go to Daniel chapter 12. Before we go to Revelation, go with me to Daniel 12. All right, just a few chapters over. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. When you're there, say, I'm there. All right, all right. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Notice what Daniel is told to do with these visions that refer to many days in the future. Verse 4, it says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the what? The book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Okay, so according to this verse, what is Daniel supposed to do with his vision? Seal it up. Shut it up. Okay, it's actually, it says uh, seal up the book. But then, did you notice the anticipation? Seal the book until, until when? Until the time of the end. Kind of gives you a foreshadowing that, oh, there would be a time where this book is unsealed, right? Go down to verse 9. Go down to verse 9. Daniel chapter 12, verse 9. It says, and he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and what? Sealed till the time of the end. Okay, so you notice the pattern. Daniel, there are certain parts of his vision that are not for his day. There are certain parts of the vision that he doesn't quite understand. And so God says, hey, seal it up, close it up until the time of the end. Make sure to write that in. In your handout, Daniel chapter 12, verse 4 and 9 says, This sealed vision is later referred to as a sealed book. Go ahead and write it in. As a sealed book to be open at the time of the end. So question is, when was that book ever opened? Or has that book been opened? Have the prophecies of Daniel that weren't for his day, that were in Daniel's day sealed up, has that book ever been opened? Go with me to Revelation chapter 10. All right? Revelation now. We're going to Revelation, last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 10. And when you're there, go ahead and say, I'm there. Oh, you guys are quick. All right, here we go. Revelation chapter 10. 
we're going to find a scene in which there is a book pictured, but it's not closed. All right, Daniel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. And verse 2, and he had a what? A little scroll, maybe your Bible says. Mine says little book. But notice it says he had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So here, this isn't the prophet Daniel. This is now the prophet John. John the apostle as he's watching these visions that God is giving him. And he sees an angel with, and in his hand is a little book or a little scroll. And notice the key word, this little book is open. This little book is open in his hand. The implication is that this little book was formerly closed. The very fact that that detail is there, that this book is open, gives you a hint that this book was formerly closed. And what's interesting is someone might say, well, how do you even know that's even connected to Daniel's prophecies and stuff? Well, what's interesting is from this very point in the book of Revelation, especially in chapters 11, 12, 13, 14, what you'll find are numerous allusions to or references to or parallels to the book of Daniel. This is where in Revelation it explodes with connections saying, look to Daniel. All right. So here we find this little book that is open in his hand. So make sure to write that in if you haven't already in your handout. We're going to prophetic passage number two. John sees an angel with a little book that is open. A little book that is open. This little book is that vision of Daniel chapter 8, the part that he didn't understand, the part that was for the time of the end. And so now what we're seeing here is John is watching this vision, looking at this angel with this open book in his hand. He is now basically part of this prophetic drama. He's watching this prophetic drama that is now depicting the time of the end in which the prophecies of Daniel will be unsealed. And in verse 8 and 9, John is now invited not just to watch the drama happen, he's actually invited to step into the drama and be an actor in it. Watch, let's see what happens. Daniel chapter, excuse me, Revelation chapter 10, verse 8. The Bible says, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Okay, so here John is asked to do something. What is he asked to do? to go take that little book. You see that angel over there? He's got a little book open in his hand. Go take it. Go take it. And in verse 9, there's another instruction given. Verse 9 says, So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and do what? Eat it. Whoa, 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 whoa. Stop right there. What kind of book was this? (laughs) Did he have some seasoned salt on the side? You know, just kind of moisten that thing. What, what, what? How do people eat books? How do people eat books? What's interesting is when you're looking in Revelation and you find things that you don't quite understand, there's usually an Old Testament story that provides a framework for understanding what's going on. It's interesting because in the Old Testament you actually see a couple of examples where there are prophets who were told to eat their book, okay? Let's check it out. Dan, let's see here. Jeremiah was one of them. In Jeremiah 15, it says, Your words were found, and I ate them, 
And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Okay, here's Jeremiah. He's not talking about eating a literal book. What he's talking about is eating the words of God, consuming them for himself. And it gave him great joy, right? How about in Ezekiel? Notice in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, do what with what you find? Eat it, right? Eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Very interesting. Jeremiah is told to eat the words of God. Ezekiel is told to eat this scroll, but by eating it, he's ingesting it for the sake of being able to share it. Do you notice that last part? Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So in the Old Testament, God had this pattern of being able to give prophets a scroll to eat, okay? Yeah, chew on this, literally, right? <laughs> chew on this, but not just for your benefit, not just for your joy, but for someone else's joy. Go and share this message. So now that we're back in Revelation chapter 10, and we see John is being told, hey, go take this book, the prophecies of Daniel that were formerly misunderstood or, or not even quite understood altogether. Go take this book and eat it, what John is being told as a representative of God's people at the end of time, he's saying, look, God's people at the end of time will be able to understand the prophecies of Daniel, specifically the 2300 days, not for their own joy, but for the joy of sharing it with others. Do we follow today, yes or no? Yeah, are you seeing the connections there? We're, we're kind of connecting the dots here. Okay, okay. There's, there's a vision that's closed up in Daniel chapter 8. In Revelation 10, this vision is actually opened up. But John, representing God's people, is now told to eat it, which means to ingest it for his joy, but also for the sake of sharing it for others' joy. Okay, okay. So question is, while this is a prophetic anticipation of that, Revelation chapter 10, did this ever actually happen? Did this ever actually happen where God's people would understand the 2300-day prophecy, not just for their joy, but also for someone else's joy? Did that ever happen, yes or no? Yes, indeed. If you know this individual, his name was William Miller. William Miller. He wasn't, you know, studied in the great theological schools of the day. He was just an American farmer. He actually was a deist. He wasn't even sure if God really cared. He knew that God existed, but he wasn't even sure if God cared. It was like God created the world and said, hey, have a nice life, okay? But along the line of William Miller's journey, he actually had an experience where God just grabbed a hold of his heart, and he began to study the words of this book. He began to study it in such a way that if there was ever anything that he came across that he didn't quite understand, he would look up every other verse that has to do with that concept or thought until he thoroughly understood what the Bible was saying. He became a student of the Bible. And he came across a, a prophecy that we actually just read a few moments ago in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary would be cleansed. He didn't quite understand this, but as he studied, he compared Scripture with Scripture. He, begun, he began to understand that, sure enough, this was talking about a prophecy that would impact the very end of time. And he noted that this prophecy, 2,300 days, as he was linking it with Daniel chapter 9, he noted, whoa, 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 this is going to happen in my day. This is going to happen in my day. He lived in the 1830s, 1840s, and on. 
as William Miller began to understand, he actually drew the conclusion that if the sanctuary represents the earth, this is where he kind of had a little misguided understanding and assumption that was common in that day. If the sanctuary represented the earth, and the earth is to be cleansed, that must be in anticipation of Jesus' second coming. And so he drew a conclusion and he said, oh, the earth is going to be cleansed by fire when Jesus comes again. And he drew, the, you know, he, he drew out all the charts, he, he, he compared all the scriptures, he connected all the dots, and his conclusion was that Jesus would come in 1844. In 1844. All of this took place. He was really understanding that sure enough, something was going to happen. But if we didn't actually read the rest of this vision there, John, excuse me, Revelation chapter 10. Are you still there? Revelation chapter 10. So let's start in verse 9 again. Revelation chapter 10, verse 9. The Bible says, So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. And notice what's going to happen after he eats it. And it will make your stomach what? Okay, yours says sour. Mine says bitter. But it will be as sweet as honey where? In your mouth. In your mouth. Very interesting. This eating experience will have a dual dynamic. Sweet yet bitter. Sweet yet bitter. It was sweet in the mouth, bitter in the belly. What comes first when you're eating something? The mouth experience or the belly experience? The mouth experience, right? And so in other words, John, as he's taking part of this vision, he's representing God's people, that when they actually begin to understand the prophecies of Daniel, it would be a sweet, sweet experience. It would be like Jeremiah's experience. So, oh, it was just, you know, joy in my bones. But the anticipation is that it would become, what? Bitter or sour in the belly. Is this what happened when William Miller and others who began to understand those prophecies, is this what happened? Sure enough, when you understand the history of this Millerite movement, this is exactly what happened. I want to make sure that we're following in our handout. I don't want to leave anybody guessing here. Uh, Revelation chapter 10, verse 8. This is reminiscent of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. When commissioned with a message, John represents God's end-time people in this vision and is commissioned with the message of this open book. This, historic, excuse me, this was historically fulfilled in the Millerite movement. Go ahead and write that one in. In the Millerite movement. This was historically fulfilled in the Millerite movement of the 1840s. All right, and this is exactly what happened. William Miller, as he was studying these things, he studied them on his own. He didn't even talk to anybody about this. He was so wowed by the, the Bible that, that it, was just, it was a sufficient experience on his own. But as he drew the conclusion that in his lifetime, in the 1840s, Jesus would actually come again, he began to feel very burdened. He said, people ought to know. <laughs> People ought to know, this news is too good to keep quiet. But, William Miller knew that he was a very limited man of limited experience, and, and he felt really actually shy about sharing it with others. So he made a deal with God. He said, God, I'll share this, but I'm only going to share this when I'm asked. I'm not going to volunteer it, okay? Watch out what happens when you make deals with God, by the way. <laughs> As William Miller got off of his knees that, that morning, there was a knock on his door within an hour. It was his nephew who had walked miles to get to his house and said, 
Uncle Miller, Uncle William, would you please come and share at our church the things that you've been studying? Our preacher is sick this weekend, so would you please come and share what you've been studying, specifically the stuff that you've been studying in prophecy? When we make a deal with God, he knows, even before we've said the prayer, (laughs) exactly what we need and when we need it. So this is what William Miller began to do. He shared once, he shared again, he shared again, and it snowballed from there. As people saw the logic, as people saw how Scripture explains Scripture, as people understood the open book, they were rejoicing as they ate it. It was powerful. I mean, can you imagine... If you had the anticipation that Jesus was coming in three months? Wow. Could you imagine if you had a definite timetable as this message was being preached from church to church, from tent to tent, from house to house? Can you imagine what kind of fervor and anticipation you would begin to feel? Can you imagine the kinds of things that would shift in priority? Yeah? All that... That game on TV, well, there are other things to get ready for, right? That investment, that stock that I've been watching, well, uh, someone else can watch it because I'm watching for something else, right? All of a sudden, priorities shift. Potato fields were left unharvested. Things were left undone. Why? Because their priorities were focused on the kingdom of God. It was a powerful time of revival. In fact, it's told in some historical accounts that as people walked the streets, you know, stranger passing other stranger. It wasn't kind of the, uh, you know, the, the typical mall scene where you don't even think that others exist. You know? It was this kind of thing where they were actually walking past one another. Stranger says, hey, brother, do you see any sin in me that needs to be confessed? I mean, these kinds of things, the, that, that was the quality of interaction. People were so turned to heaven that that was all that mattered. And for them, it was a sweet experience, a reviving experience. But as the prophecy of Revelation 10 reveals, it was sweet at first, but it became sour in the belly. It was a bitter experience. Why do we say that? Why? Well, because the date that they had anticipated in October 22 of 1844, that day of great anticipation actually led to a great disappointment. October 23 came, (laughs) and so did 24, and 25, and so on and so forth, and here we are in the year 2015. And so here, this, this picture that we see in Revelation 10 was actually fulfilled to the most exact degree. There in your handout, let's make sure to fill it in, Revelation 10, verses 9 through 10. It's sweet-turned-bitter experience. Go ahead and fill it in. It's sweet-turned-bitter experience finds historical fulfillment in the great disappointment. Go ahead and write it in. In the great disappointment of 1844. Now, this is a, a kind of a critical juncture because at some point, if you're a reasoning person, if you're kind of a, a logical person, you're realizing, wait a minute, God just prophesied that there would be this great revival that ends up feeling like a punch in the stomach. God just foretold all of this happening. Is this just a really bad prank on the part of God? 
Is this just uh, like a, a super, like, uh, I don't know, pessimistic or just uh, unthought through? I mean, why would God even do this to his people? Have you ever thought that? I don't know, maybe I'm the only one in this room. <laughs> but why would God actually allow this prophecy to be understood to some degree? You know, the Daniel chapter 8, the, the 2,300 days. Why wouldn't he allow people to understand it right away so they could get it right the first time? Why go through this disappointment and then, oh, this bitter experience? Why would God do that? Well, what's interesting to me is that there is actually a time in which God did this before. That God, when he allows disappointment, he's actually not planning for your ruin or my ruin. He's actually planning for our triumph. Did you hear what I said? When God allows disappointment, he's actually planning for our victory. I want you to think about a time in which, in the New Testament, we find certain prophecies being misunderstood in such a way that the disappointment leaves people crying their eyes out, hiding in different rooms, wondering what life is all about. And it eventually turns into a great triumph. Are we following today, yes or no? Think about it, think about it. In the New Testament, you know, the picture that's on the screen, this is the picture of Palm Sunday, right? When Jesus decided to ride on a what? Does anybody know? It was a donkey. He decided to ride on a donkey into the capital city of Jerusalem. Here's the thing. The people of Jesus' day knew the prophecies of Old Testament Scripture. They knew that prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 that says your king is coming riding on a donkey. Jesus lived in a time in which they had this messianic anticipation that their king would come to redeem them. And they would be able to recognize that king once he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus, being all-wise and infinitely compassionate, he understood their misunderstanding. Because they thought, when our king comes, he's going to deliver us. And that was correct to some degree. But what they thought was, their king would come to deliver them from Rome. Their king would come would, to deliver them from these earthly oppressors. But Christ the king wanted to come to deliver us first and foremost from the oppression of sin. Christ the king wanted to take care of the root of the problem. And so when Jesus sat on that donkey, was he pulling a really bad prank on his disciples? That just a week later, they would be sorely disappointed. Hey, Jesus, I thought you were the king. You were supposed to come in and take the throne. What happened? Jesus actually took their misunderstanding of Scripture. Why? So that all eyes would be on him when he came into the city, not as a king, but as the Lamb of God who would take away all sin. Think about this. Just a few days later, all eyes were on him because he took advantage of the misunderstanding of Scripture. All eyes were on Jesus, what he would do as the Lamb of God. Now, when we're talking about the Millerite experience, the great disappointment, why would God allow this? Why? So that all eyes would be on Jesus, not this time as the Lamb of God, but as the high priest in heaven. 
1844, there wasn't anything that took place on earth visibly. No, no, no. What Daniel chapter 8, verse 14 was anticipating, and Daniel chapter 9 really points to, is that Jesus would transition as the high priest in heaven. It wasn't an earthly event to look for in 1844. It was a heavenly transition where Jesus, not as the lamb, but as the high priest, would transition from his holy place ministry to his most holy place ministry. Jesus used a misunderstanding of Scripture to keep all eyes on Him and what He was doing in the sanctuary. Wow. So, in Revelation chapter 10, when Jesus actually anticipates this, when John is now receiving this vision, it's not that God is pulling a bad prank but that he's actually setting us up to understand what would happen. So when the disappointment came, we would still be able to see the sun shining beyond the clouds. Are we following today? Yes or no? That God is still moving. That God is still moving. I love this reality. Before we go to our last prophetic passage, that out of the the crumbles and shambles of our greatest disappointments, God can bring the greatest victories and triumphs. I don't know what, what it is you're holding in your hands that, that may feel like it's broken, it's hopeless, there's nothing to make of this. But God can. He has. And He always will. God can do it. Maybe it's a marriage. God can do it. Maybe it's your finances. God can do it. You know, maybe it's your family relationships. God can do it. Maybe it's your grades. I don't know. God can do that too. Whatever it is, your greatest disappointments, God can make it the greatest victory. It's the gospel of disappointment, friends. (laughs) It's the gospel of disappointment. So there in Revelation chapter 10, you're still there. Before we go on to our next passage, notice with me. Verse 10 and 11, this is what happens. It says, Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. This is exactly what happened in that great disappointment. But notice that verse 10 is not the end of the story. In verse 11, the story continues, and the angel says, and he said to me, you must do what? Prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So here's John, representing God's people. He's understood the prophecies of Daniel chapter 8. It was sweet, but then it turned bitter. John is doubled over. Oh, man, why did I do that? And the angel says to him, hey, get up. Get up again. You must prophesy again. And is this what would happen? Out of the great disappointment of 1844, is this what would happen amongst God's people? Would they stay doubled over? No. Out of the great disappointment of 1844, there were four different responses, generally speaking. Lots of people from all sorts of denominations, they came together realizing Jesus is coming soon. There's nothing more important than seeing Jesus face to face. And after October 22, 1844, there were four different groups that responded. One was generally a response of rejection. Ah, forget it. This was all a hoax. They walked away. They turned their backs. They said, don't even talk to me about that stuff. That was one response. 
A second response was saying, hey, 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 Jesus did come. He just came in a way that we didn't quite understand. He came spiritually speaking. And there were some that actually, they took some, some verses like, uh, you know, in order to see the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be like little children. They took that very literally. They began to walk on hands and knees, saying, goo goo gaga, and uh, said, hey, Jesus, is, I'm now a part of the kingdom. So there were some who rejected it. There were some who said, yeah, he did come, and we're just, you know, we're here for the ride. There was a third group that said, no, 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 no. Maybe we just got the date wrong. And so they continued to set another date, and another date, and another date. And eventually, hope that's deferred makes the heart grow sick, right? And eventually that group faded away. But there was a fourth group that said, no, the dates were right, but maybe we just misunderstood the event. Maybe we just misunderstood what it means that the sanctuary would be cleansed. Is there a sanctuary that's not the earth? And sure enough, their eyes were pointed from the book of Hebrews, all these other things. Their eyes were pointed to what Jesus would do in the heavenly sanctuary. That there were two phases of his ministry for us. And they realized, oh, Jesus is in the most holy place now. He's wrapping up the final phase of his redemptive plan. And this group said, oh, now we understand the prophecies we had eaten. And now we can prophesy again. Are we following today, yes or no? That fourth group, that fourth group eventually became what we know today as the Seventh-day Adventist movement. They realized the Advent is still to come. It's the only thing worth living for, and so they put it in their name, Adventist. And they realized that the Seventh-day Sabbath was a day that pointed to the only one who creates, who redeems, and sanctifies that if we're going to be prepared for that advent, we must rest in Jesus. <laughs> Woo. And so this group, out of the crumbles of disappointment, they took chapter 10, verse 11, as their mission. He said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, and tongues, and kings. Go with me now to our last prophetic passage. We're going to uh, Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. In your handout, maybe you've already read it or written it. The bitter belly experience of God's people in 1844 was not to be the end of the story. They were to preach the sure word of prophecy. The sure word of prophecy yet again. And then on the, the back side of your handout, this resilient commitment to the divine commission of Revelation 10:11 was historically fulfilled by those who persevered in the aftermath of the Great Disappointment and eventually became the Seventh-day Adventist movement as we know it today. All right. Last passage. If you're in Revelation 14, say, I'm there. All right. So this, this commitment, it came out of that, uh, the picture of Revelation 10, 11. Hey, you must prophesy again to many peoples, nations, tongues, tribes. And in Revelation chapter 14, what we find is a picture of God's people if you notice, uh, maybe you're familiar with this chapter. We've studied it at that seminar. There are 144,000 who stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion, and they have the name of the Father written in their foreheads. And according to Revelation 14, verse 4, wherever the Lamb goes, they go, right? They follow the Lamb wherever He leads. These are God's people. And according to verse 6 and onward, 
there's a picture of what God's people will declare at the end of time. Turn with me now to Revelation 14, verse 6, and see if you can discern a connection to Revelation 10. It says in verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every what? Nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Does that sound eerily familiar to Revelation 10, 11? In Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, out of the crumbles of that bitterness, the angel tells John, hey, you must prophesy again to who? To many kings, nations, tongues, peoples. What we find in Revelation 14, 6 is a linguistic link. What Revelation 14, 6 is, it's the sequel. It's the sequel to Revelation 10 where the people of God are commissioned. Okay, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it. In chapter 14, it's actually a picture of the people of God doing it, proclaiming this everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. So there in your handout, let's fill it in. This proclamation of the everlasting gospel to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people is the sequel. Go ahead and write it in. Is the sequel to the prophetic commission of Revelation 10, verse 11. This is pretty amazing, friends. Why? One, because these messages of Revelation 6 through 12, we're not going to read it this morning. We're actually going to go through it in detail tonight. If you have no idea what they mean, come tonight, friends. You need to come. Why? Because these messages are being proclaimed as we speak. In other words, the Seventh-day Adventist movement is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Let that sink in just a little bit. <laughs> Sometimes we wonder, what, what, what's the big deal about being part of the Seventh-day Adventist church? You know, last night if you were here at the seminar, you saw, hey, biblical identifiers for God's true church, and hey, I mean, everything lines up. But really, is it all that important? I mean, maybe you're, you're a Seventh-day Adventist currently, and maybe it's just kind of by default. Maybe it's just because it was expected. Maybe it's because that was the cultural norm you grew up with and it's the cultural norm you kept. Or maybe you're actually uh, new to this faith and you're saying, hey, this is something that I, I, you know, I enjoy. It feels comfortable. I mean, the people are very loving and praise the Lord for that. Amen. Maybe you're here because, you know, we are more right than others. You know, while that may be true, I'm not sure if that's a satisfactory answer for why we are Seventh-day Adventists. Do you follow me today? Yeah? I mean, because for a very long time, I'll, I'll be honest and admit that I was Seventh-day Adventist. I'm, I should say I am Seventh-day Adventist. But my motivation or my reason was simply because we were more right than everybody else. And while that may be true, to have that as a primary meaning, it kind of skews my perspective or relationship with those that are not of my faith because that makes me better than them. <laughs> and so I wonder if today we find in these prophetic passages a better reason for being or becoming part of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Could it be that by being or becoming a Seventh-day Adventist we are actually stepping into prophecy? The Seventh-day Adventist movement, according to Revelation 10, 
is actually anticipated by God being raised up at a time in which the prophecies that pointed to Jesus would be needed amongst a world in which all who dwell in it are actually worshiping after other things that they think are God but are really the beasts. This is heavy, heavy, heavy. I don't know if I'm articulating the, very, uh, the nature of this as clearly as I want it to. But here's the point. When you and I decide to be or remain part of this movement, we are essentially saying that my name is in prophecy. <laughs> that I have a place in prophecy does this give us permission to puff up our, our chests and say, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm better than everybody else. Don't even touch me. No, no, no. What this does is that this places on us a, a prophetic purpose, a prophetic mission, a prophetic identity that says God has planned for me to be part of those who proclaim to the world those messages that would cause people to look to Jesus and only Jesus. Today I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and I, I praise the Lord for that. But I'm a Seventh-day Adventist not because I'm more right than others. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because God needs a people at the end of time who will declare the three angels' messages. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because I have a place in prophecy. It's not by default. It's by divine destiny. It's not by habit. It's by the Holy Spirit's lead. Friends, why are you part of this movement? Or why do you even want to consider being part of this movement? It's not just a comfortable place to come up and show up on Saturday mornings. No, no, no. It's a movement. We're going somewhere. Are you going somewhere? I'm going somewhere. And I want to make sure that all that I love and all that I know and all that I will know will come with me. To proclaim these three angels' messages is to be a fulfillment of prophecy. So there in your handout, the last paragraph, it says, when we choose to join the voice of our lives with the voice of these three angels' messages that call the world to look to Jesus, we are taking on a prophetic identity. We are, in fact, a living fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Oh, write it in not just on paper, but on your heart, we are taking on a prophetic identity. We're living, we're a living fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Friends, today has the message been clear? Yes or no? Yeah? Three simple prophetic passages. A book that's closed. That wasn't understood in Daniel's day. Why? Because it would be opened at the end of time. Revelation chapter 10, God's people actually eat that book. It's sweet, but then it turns bitter. We've seen that fulfilled in the 1840s in the Millerite movement and specifically in the great disappointment. But out of the shambles of that disappointment, God would raise up triumph that would prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Friends, today, I want to appeal first, I want to speak to those who are Seventh-day Adventists. Okay? Those who come week by week. Those who have been here, maybe you're lifers, uh, maybe you're new to this faith, whatever it might be. Friends, I want you to, to reconsider why it is you are an Adventist. 
Speaking to the young people here today, too. Friends, I grew up in your chairs. I grew up in your classrooms. I grew up doing, you know, Pathfinders, band, choir, whatever. But I want you to know that this, that you are a part of, is so much more than just habit. It's so much more than your parents' faith. And it ought to be. It ought to be more than so much or it ought to be more than just uh, secondhand faith, the teacher's faith, the pastor's faith, the, your, your parent, whatever it might be. Friends, this is a prophetic calling. <laughs> and so for those of you who are in these pews, who are in these, uh, these halls, in these roles, in these leadership positions, just by habit, just by default, or just because you think you're more right than others, friends, I pray that today you would change your script. Do you understand what I mean by that? That you would find a new reason for being part of this movement. That reason being God has prophesied about it and he's looking for people who will proclaim the three angels' messages, not just in word, but also in deed. Maybe today you're scratching your head, what in the world are those three angels' messages? Well, you can read it, Revelation 14, 6 through 12, and you can come tonight, amen? You can come tonight and discover that there is spiritual meaning. All of these things Say, look to Jesus. You'll find it tonight. Now I want to appeal to those who, who aren't even Adventist or maybe are considering being part of this movement. Maybe you're a young person and you're thinking to yourself, what's the big deal? I mean, I look in the phone book and there's lots of different options. <laughs> but as we understand it now, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is not just one option of many. It's not just a flavor of the month. The Seventh-day Adventist movement apparently is a fulfillment of prophecy that God is raising up in these end times. So for those of you who are actually considering being a part of this movement, I would say this. Don't settle. Don't settle for being more right than others. Don't settle for feeling more comfortable in this church than in other churches. Although we hope you would, right? Don't settle for the good food, although we hope that it's good food, right? Don't settle for the comfy pews or whatever it might be. Don't settle for mediocre reasons. Realize and embrace the prophetic call to live a prophetic life. So maybe today you're weighing that out in your heart and mind. You're wondering, what in the world is this all about? If this is true, what will I do? <laughs> I want to be a part of that movement. I want to be part of those who follow the Lamb wherever He leads, and if, he, if there's a message to proclaim, I want to give it, not just in my word, but also in my life. I want to join the voice of my life with the voice of those angels. Tonight, I'm so used to preaching at night. Today, if that's your desire, if you're saying, yeah, there is a prophetic movement that God is raising up to proclaim messages that is needed in these end times, and you're saying, I want my life to be a part of that, go ahead and just raise your hand to heaven. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Amen. Yeah, that's right. Let's pray together as we close. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you're the God who actually reveals to us your plans in prophecy. That these prophecies are not just to pique curiosity or to just stir up different ideas and things. No, these prophecies are revealing to us our destiny, our identity. That when I flip through these pages, I can actually find myself right there. God, that is humbling to me. And this sacred responsibility of a prophetic identity and a prophetic mission, Lord, forgive us for ever using that as an excuse to exalt ourselves. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, now we ask just for the grace 
and the humility to accept this identity, to accept this prophetic call, and we give you permission to raise us up in these times to proclaim the message of these three angels with conviction and with consistency. Father, I pray for those who are established in the faith that you would revive our desire and our commitment and our rationale. For those who are considering, Lord, I pray that you would really set things straight in our own hearts and minds as to what it is and why it is you're calling us today. Lord, I pray especially for our young people. I thank you, God, that you desire to raise up an army of workers as our young people, rightly trained, to bear the message of a crucified, risen, and soon-coming Savior. So, Lord, guard this, this crop of young people and give them the faith of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to, to open up your word. And, Lord, as we leave this place, may we leave transformed. In Jesus' name, let the family say, Amen.